Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers, Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Ben is away. He's celebrating his birthday in Hawaii. But uh, he'll be back with us uh, later at some point. Uh, but let's dive into what we've been doing. Uh, Jacob, what have you been doing this week? I've been recovering from Fantastic Fest. As my voice may sound, I am sick. I have a cold. Uh, thanks, dense crowds of people at a film festival. Uh, but I just want to say that um, a lot of people came up to me during the fest to say hi, and that there were readers and listeners from this website, from Slashroom.com and this podcast. So... Uh, thanks to you all. You were all lovely. You know, I'm happy to have met you all. And to the guy who approached me and introduced himself by reading the entire, no, sorry, not reading, reciting the entire title of the joke book from wait, memory. Wait, wait, Jacob, this means that you no longer have to read uh, jokes from it, right? No, it means that somebody else beat you to it, Peter, somebody who listens to the <sighs> podcast. So let's find a new way for um, you to break free of this curse. Uh, but yeah, so thanks to you all. And uh, it really does mean a lot to, to us when you come up and say hi at these things because when we're working in a vacuum, we always only hear the negative. So when people come up and say they enjoy it and, you know, come up and say, hey, we like what you do, it does mean a lot. And we appreciate it. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, I, I've been having a lot of people in L.A. come up to me saying they listen to the podcast, and uh, it really does mean quite a bit. So thank you for coming up to us, and uh, thank you for listening, too. Yeah. Uh, Brad, what, what happened to your car this week? Oh, so, some idiot wrecked it, and that idiot is me. <laughs> Uh, on, on Friday, there was, there was this really like huge long storm system that made its way through, uh, through the Midwest. And it was basically moving over where I live from Friday, starting at like 1 PM through pretty much the next morning. It was raining nonstop. Sometimes it was a torrential downpour and there was thunder and lightning and everything. And uh, in the evening on Friday, I, I had to go out because my, my cat was out of food. and He needed food, and my girlfriend and I hadn't eaten dinner yet, so we decided just to venture out in the rain because it wasn't bad at the time. 
uh, we chose to go out. But while we were out, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just torrential downpour. And I was making my way through uh, the parking lot where I go to pick up my my cat food, which is like it's like a basically a tractor supply store. And, and so I was going through and I was turning around in the actual parking lot to just go up to the front of the store so I wouldn't get drenched by the rain. And it was raining so hard. And just even with my windshield wipers at full speed, I hit a one the round cement base that the park one of the parking lot street lamps was in could not see it and hit it driving through and so smashed the hell out of the front of my car uh and like and it's it's even worse than like if you get into like a normal like fender bender or something like that because this was a big stationary cement <laughs> block that was not moving when when i hit it and did not move when i hit it so it was much louder and harder hitting than I would have expected something like that to be. So now I'm in the midst of dealing with all the insurance stuff. And because my car is a bit older and because the damage um, is uh, pretty, you know, sizable, I'm, I might have to, my, my car might be totaled. So I might have to go find another one after I get, you know, my insurance checked for it and everything. So that's, that's, an, I've been figuring all that out this week and it's, it's so much fun. And, and everybody in the car was okay. Yeah, we were all fine. The the seatbelts hit us uh, relatively hard because it was such a sudden, you know, uh, impact. And so we were a little bit tender on, in our chest, but like the airbags didn't go off or anything. So that was good. Yeah, uh, that's scary, but it's good that everybody's safe. And uh, it sounds like you might be getting a new car. That could be potentially great, right? Uh, maybe. It won't be like a new car, but it'll be new to me, I guess, if, yeah. if that happens. So new to you uh okay let's move on to what we've been reading i mentioned on the podcast last week that i've been reading bob Iger's memoir a ride of a lifetime and uh you know i, I kind of spoiled some of the stuff i was going to talk about on the podcast at, like in that episode but th this book is very interesting uh maybe not Iger himself well Iger is just a like so such a smart guy uh you can tell why he has is such a great leader for this company of, of Disney. And um, he just has so many great stories over his years because he started at ABC as a weatherman and, you know, worked his way up to, you know, the head of Disney. And um, there's a chapter on Marvel. There's a chapter on Star Wars. Uh, there's a, t a chapter on Pixar. There's a ton of great Steve Jobs stories. So if you're a fan of hearing how, uh, much of an asshole Steve Jobs could be. Um, you know, it, 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 it's great to hear that kind of stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's funny because there's even like, I know a lot of our sites, a lot of the movie news sites online have picked up on a, a bunch of like the news coming out of these these stories but there's still little nuggets in there that like nobody is covering like last week i i uh we wrote up like a thing that was just one sentence and then side in the book where uh he mentioned that after pixar after disney had acquired pixar animation studios that steve jobs who is the you know was the the number one uh shareholder in the company and a board member uh was trying to get them to shut down disney animation studios and have pixar be the sole creator of animated movies at the company and uh we wrote up that story like i mean it, just little crazy bits like that uh i feel like uh 
Chris, I know you read a lot of books about, uh, you know, the behind the scenes of movies and stuff. I, I feel like you'd get a kick at least out of the modern day chapters of Bob Iger's uh, book because there's just so many just to hear how things went down behind the scenes. And it's it's not exactly how you think things happened. Um, so, yeah, I would re- recommend this. This is uh, Bob Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime. And um, there's also so, so much uh, good, uh, like, insight. Uh, if, if you're, like, just – he's just such a smart guy. Um, but, yeah, that's what I've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? Uh, I read A Horror Store by Grady Hendrix. And uh, Hendrix is best known as a screenwriter and for writing the book Paperbacks from Hell, which is a history of – horror paperbacks to the 70s and 80s he's a kind of an invaluable resource of horror knowledge and a horror store is his first novel and the joke is that it looks like an ikea catalog it has like the cover art of an ikea catalog and you flip through it each chapter begins with a different piece of like ikea-esque furniture and uh it's about a haunted ikea store or rather a haunted orsk store which is a ripoff of ikea in the book and it's about a group of employees who are trapped overnight in their store and learn that there are evil spirits about. And the presentation of it being, you know, looks like a catalog uh, makes it seem a little cute at first, like it's, like it's going to be like a comedy or, you know, comedy horror. But it ends up devolving or evolving into a real serious horror novel. It gets really creepy and upsetting and a lot of freaky body horror happens. And I can really see this being a really cool, scary movie. I know that the TV rights were sold in 2015, but nothing's ever come of that. And uh, it has like a lot of really cool and nice touches, like how the IKEA art and IKEA esque art and IKEA esque you know catalog entries that pop up throughout the book start off looking very mundane and normal, and start getting increasingly upsetting and creepy as you go throughout the book. And it ends up being a really interesting uh, take on on the world of retail. Um, ultimately, this is a horror story that's about. Uh, what retail employees owe to each other in a business where their bosses don't care about them at all. As somebody who used to work in retail, I understood that implicitly. And I found it strangely moving in the end uh, where Grady Hendrix takes this story. But before he gets there, it's just really, really clever and really scary. And I really recommend Horror Store. It's Grady Hendrix. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. And it seems like everybody on staff, except for me, has been watching The Good Place. So, uh, Jacob, why don't you lead this thing? Like, what is, what did you think of the new season of The Good Place? Yeah, the, the fourth season premiere, uh, the last season premiere before the show ends. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much because people may still be watching it. People may have not caught up yet. All the first three seasons are streaming on Netflix now. Uh, but you know, this is a fantasy comedy series that has sort of defied expectations and has continuously reinvented itself over and over again. And in its last season, it's kind of narrowed its focus back down to a a one-location show again after kind of sprawling all over the universe uh, for the past season and a half. And as much as I enjoyed it spreading into wings and like becoming a buffet of ideas for the past 13 episodes, uh, seeing it kind of go home again uh, with this new status quo was really satisfying. I'm happy to see everybody in the same place again. And at the same time, it's really not settling down. It's introducing new threats and ideas constantly. And for me, the greatest strength of The Good Place has always been how the world building and the fantasy uh, and, you know, the, the stakes matter as much as the comedy. And the comedy is always so sharp and funny. Uh, HT, do you think this is uh, this return to like a smaller focus is a good way to end the show? Is uh, the comedy holding up to the storytelling? What do you think so far? 
Oh, for sure. The comedy is, as always, just incredibly sharp and funny. And I was thinking about how by narrowing its focus, the series is more serialized than ever, even more so than its first season. It feels very much like it's hurtling towards that end point. And um, in like the structure, it feels even less like a comedy, just feels kind of like a drama in a way, because it's just like that first chapter in um, the like end days of the show. And so when someone asked me whether like I thought it was a good episode, I said, of course it's good, but I couldn't... um, say exactly why it just feels like mounting the excitement for where the story will go and um, I'm excited to see where it goes and I'm yeah I'm excited to, to again see all of the characters back again um, and just like the dynamics between all of the casts so great and easy and of course to see Derek once again play, uh, who is uh, just a fantastic um, little supporting character who uh, was a lot of fun in this this episode. And Chris, does the show bring light into your life still? I, I know it, it's one of the few things keeping you happy these days. Yes, um, this is actually the first season I've I've watched live. I've always streamed the other seasons after they've ended, and uh, I don't know how I feel about that because it's it's kind of like. <laughs> part of the fun of the other seasons for me was being able to binge them through and get, you know, that endorphin rush. And this time I have to wait. It's like being doled out to me slowly. So I'm kind of like debating whether or not I should like wait now until it's done and then binge it. But I feel like it's the last season and I just should keep up with it. And and Brad, uh, how do you feel about the season so far? I mean, you're a comedy guy. I mean, do you, has the show ever lost a step uh, with the comedy when it's trying to, you know, build toward really high stakes endgame, or has it always managed to walk that uh, that wire for you? No, it's it's it walks the wire perfectly, and that's I think that's one of the most amazing things about this show is, you know, um, Mike Schur's previous work in shows like The Office and Parks and Recreation. Uh, obviously, there were great characters, and you got invested in their stories. Um, but it was it felt like it was also, you know, uh, lean much more heavily on comedy and jokes and that kind of thing. And this show does this amazing thing where it weaves a very interesting, complex and well thought out narrative, but still has these amazing comedic beats in it. I laughed so hard, you know, just for example, when uh, the people in the bad place start singing their theme song. <laughs> it's you know, it was such a brilliant uh, bit to put in there. And one of the things that I also really love is it, it's such a funny thing to me that all these all the you know uh, demons and the people who work you know in sort of the the afterlife business if you will uh, they all still re- make references to things in pop culture and I love this idea that even though like they're kind of overseeing humanity and controlling what happens to them afterwards they are also they also still get caught up in the entertainment that humanity creates that like there's there's a reference that Maya Rudolph makes to that she just started watching uh Deadwood and like those kinds of things are just so so funny to me and like they help just build this really funny but also uh well-structured world I think the moral of the story of this conversation is that Peter should watch The Good Place yeah everybody's telling me I need to watch The Good Place I I feel like though I I already know the big twists that happen in the show. I know I'm I'm the person who's not like adverse to spoilers. So it's, but there's a, there's a bunch of twists though. Like the first season has one big one, but there's more. Yeah. I know the second season twist too. (laughs) You'll be Uh, fine, Peter. It's, it's funny enough. It's charming enough. You'll be on board. I promise. See, my my girlfriend, Kitra 
tries to convince me to watch the show. She watches the show. She tries to convince me to watch the show by being like, let me tell you the big twist at the end of the, like, that's her, like, trying to tempt me to watch it. And that, that makes me not want to watch it. <laughs> but now that I know it, um, ah, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have to schedule a time to watch The Good Place. I mean, it's short, right? Is it half an hour? Yeah, it's half hour episodes and they're 13 episode seasons. So you should be able to be caught up in a weekend. Yeah. You know what isn't short? The Irishman. And uh, HD and Chris both saw this. We talked about it, I think, last week. I, I mentioned their reactions on the early buzz. Uh, but HT and Chris are both here to tell you for themselves what they thought of the movie. So let's start things out with HT. Oh, I, I was going to say we should start with Chris since he wrote the review. But let's start with Chris. Let's uh, start with Chris. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> the Irishman stinks. No, it's the... Um... <laughs> it is my number one movie of the year. It is uh, everything I wanted and more. I mean, I went into this with the highest of expectations. I'm a uh, Martin Scorsese is without question my favorite filmmaker. He's the reason I, you know, wanted to learn him and like Steven Spielberg are like the two reasons I wanted to learn as much about movies as I possibly could. And uh, this movie was a big deal because it was reuniting him with uh, not just Robert De Niro, but also Joe Pesci, who has been retired for uh, a long time. And, uh, you know, I went into this with sort of expectations and also preconceived notions. I thought it was going to be in the same, you know, spirit as uh, his two other big De Niro, Pesci mob movies, Goodfellas and Casino. And both those movies are different themselves, but they, they, they're they sort of cut from the same cloth, the same like energetic cloth. And this film is is a lot different. In, in many ways, it's like the anti version of those two films. It's it's uh, quieter. Um, it, it's one of his most quiet movies. I mean, when you think of Scorsese, especially when you think of his his mob movies, they're sort of like wall to wall sound with you know like pop songs from the eras that they're set in. And in The Irishman, there's very long stretches of silence where there's no music at all, and uh, that's very uncommon for a Scorsese movie like this. So th that's like one of the first things that sort of strikes you unless you realize that this isn't, you know, the same old, same old. And it's a lot sadder and a lot more melancholy than I was expecting. I mean, it, it's it's very funny. There's a lot of, of humor in this movie and uh, everyone does a great job with, with the roles they're given. Uh, you know, Robert De Niro, uh, you know, at one point he was he was the best actor of his generation. And then he sort of just sort of got lazy and started making really terrible comedies for a few years. But <laughs> this is like the best he's been in a very long time. He's so good in this. And it's really a really subtle performance. It's, it's not like, uh, you know, a big De Niro performance. It, it, he does a lot of acting with just like glances and, and looks and, and stuff like that. And. Uh, Al Pacino is in this too, and this is the first time Al Pacino has worked with Martin Scorsese, and Al Pacino is great. Uh, he, he he goes very big here. It's a very big performance. Um, uh, and Joe Pesci, though, you know, out of out of these three leads, Joe Pesci is actually the best of the three, and it's so great to have him back. And it's it's such a different performance from him. Um, you know, one of the reasons Joe Pesci sort of like semi-retired is he he just kept getting offered 
the same roles over and over again, like the, the violent gangster. And that's who he played in, in Goodfellas and Casino. And uh, he actually was really hesitant to do the Irishman. I, I, I think I read that he had to be asked at least like 40 times to come out of retirement to do this movie. And when you see it, you realize why he finally came around to it is because even though he is playing a gangster in this movie, it's, it's nothing like his, his casino and Goodfellas characters. He's very quiet. He's very, uh, he's, he's very like nice. I guess you would say this is like the nicest uh, Joe Pesci has ever been in a movie. He's playing kind of like a nice guy, even though, you know, he is involved with murders and stuff like that. He's almost this like fatherly figure and he does such a good job with this performance. And it makes you realize we've been sort of like robbed of really great Joe Pesci performances just because he's been retired and no one has been offering him roles with this depth. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, I can't sing the praises of this movie enough. It's long. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like a three and a half hour mo- long movie, but it never once felt that long to me. Like I could have watched another three hours of this movie. And, by the time it ended, I got like just emotional because it ends on this really melancholy reflection of mortality. And it, it and you know, not to get like too bleak here, but like watching this movie, it, it reminded me that like, you know, Martin Scorsese, he's getting up there in age age. And this movie is a lot about the main character accepting his 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 time is coming to an end. And I was like it. You know, even though obviously I always knew this, it it like hit me. I was like, oh, one day Martin Scorsese is going to die in my lifetime. And that just like made me really, really upset. And it's like, I can't, I'm not ready to face that yet. And I don't want that to happen anytime soon. And this movie, it it's just not what I was expecting. So if you're going into this expecting like a big gangster epic, like, Goodfellas don't expect that like yes it is an epic yes it's about gangsters but it's a lot more introspective and 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 uh sadder than you you might expect and, uh I loved it I I have a question for you Chris because I was also expecting it to be like the third in that you know gangster trilogy from Scorsese what film if not a Scorsese film could you best compare this film to Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I would honestly, honestly, compare it to Citizen Kane. Citizen I mean, Kane? yeah, it does have that sprawling, like is it more, is it kind of like Godfather Two because that like spanned different time periods? And... Yeah, it, yeah, I would say it is closer to tone in 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 the Godfather saga, where not just Godfather Two, like all three Godfather movies in one is really what this is kind of like, but. It's better than Godfather 3, so don't worry about that. <laughs> HT, what did you think of the film? Well, to follow up on Chris's just a beautiful essay, um, The Irishman is majestic. I was a little nervous going into it because of its 3.5-hour runtime, and I was also nervous about the de-aging technology uh, that was used on De Niro, Pesci, and Al Pacino, which I think doesn't totally work in the context of the film. It does take a while to get used to. And even then, sometimes it does feel like a little bit of a detriment to the film because, especially in the case of De Niro, who does give such a uh, a amazing, uh, really introspective performance, but because the camera 
you know, lingering on his face the entire time, uh, you get an even closer look at some of the smoothing effects that you see, as well as um, the choice to make his eyes like bright blue, which would, which matched with um, Frank Sharan, the character he's playing. But it is just a fantastic movie. I can't say any more than what Chris has said. I do think that it takes a little bit of time to get to get into like the meat or like to get its rhythm going. Um, but once it does, it unfolds into this really transcendent meditative piece of um, filmmaking about, you know, mortality and legacy and all of those kinds of things that uh, Chris was mentioning before. And um, I, I really loved that. I especially loved um, Pesci's performance too. Everyone has been talking about Pacino because he gives this real outsized performance that is almost reminiscent of his um, most famous performances and you know, Scarface and that kind of thing. It feels very like almost nostalgic in that sense. But um, I, I was so surprised um, by Pesci who gives this understated, uh, really soul-stirring performance. Um, and uh, I, I think that just by virtue of the strength the sheer force of all of these three um, performers, you know, firing on all cylinders, that the, techno the issues I have with the technology are kind of swept aside. And um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's a really fantastic film. And um, definitely the three and a half hours fly by, especially because the it's just so enjoyable and fun and funny to watch. Well, I, I am so jealous that you guys have seen this movie and I haven't. I can't wait to see it. Uh, let's talk about Hell House. I know, Jacob, you mentioned Hell House last week because you were rewatching some of the Haunted House movies. Uh, you watched Hell House LLC 3 this week? Uh, yeah, as mentioned in this podcast before, I think the first Hell House LLC is a really outstanding found footage horror movie that is, makes really good on a low budget and is very creepy and feels like an actual piece of documentation that's been, that's been dug up and edited, which is my favorite type of found footage. The second one, not so much. And the third one, which is also brand new and streaming on Shutter right now, also not so much. It just, the scares aren't as good. It feels like it's m more based on trying to build a mythology than deliver compelling scares. It just gets so wrapped up in its own questions that no one was asking that forgets to be an entertaining horror movie. Uh, Chris, uh, I know you also watched this. Uh, I long for the days of the Hell House franchise, if that's what it is, being a really simple, straightforward ghost story. I don't need like the big, fantastical prophecies of Part Three. Am I am I alone here? Uh, no, no, you're you're a hundred percent correct. Um, I I really like Hell House LLC one. I even mostly liked Part Two, but this is um I don't know what happened. For one thing, this feels like a clip show because they keep doing this thing where they keep cutting back to scenes from the previous two movies to like remind you of stuff like, Oh, this is that room where this happened. And it happens that happens through the entire movie and it gets really distracting. And for another thing, you know, these movies were never known for their great performances, but the acting in this one is uh, like atrocious across the board. <laughs> like no one is like even the least bit believable, which is, always extra distracting in a, you know, a found footage film. So um, I will say there are like one or two creepy moments just because it's, you know, recycling stuff from the previous films. And, you know, there is something creepy about, you know, shots of, you know, 
spooky stuff standing in the background of frames, which is what this, this franchise does really well. But I would say, you know, skip this and watch the first two and just pretend this doesn't exist. Okay. So that is Hell House, Hell House LLC 3. Um, I've only been watching, I haven't been watching much this week, guys. I've, uh, I found this show on HBO called Years and Years. Have, has anybody here heard of this show? There were tons of trailers earlier this summer, but then I feel like once it premiered, like no one talked about it. Yeah, I didn't even see the trailer. I didn't even know this existed, but a friend of mine was like, you need to watch this show. And this is on HBO. It's uh, a co-production with, I think, like Studio Canal or something. Uh, it's from Russell T. Davies, who uh, HT might know because he revived Doctor Who and was yeah. the creator of Torchwood. Um, this is a drama series that... Okay, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe this because this is very, like, unlike anything on American TV. But uh, it takes place in the UK. It takes place in Manchester. Um, it, I would say it's like Black Mirror meets This Is Us, which I know sounds like a weird mashup of things. And it's a, a drama that follows a family who is living in Manchester. It's this family called The Lions, and it's starts in 2019 and it's in our world because Trump is president in, in America and it uh in the first episode within like the you know the first half of the first episode it jumps five years into the it not just jumps it like shows a montage showing we meet all this entire family it's not just like a small family it's like extended family and it shows a montage of what happens within these five years uh, after t- 2019 and, you know, all the political, economic, technological changes. And it's, it, uh, you know, it, it's kind of dark. It, it is dark. It's not kind of dark. It's dark. Uh, it shows how, you know, <laughs> someone like Trump being in power can hugely change the entire world. Um, it, uh, it in each episode also jumps one year into the future. So for the six episode series, I think you get to see like something like 15 years or something like that. Actually, no, that, that sounds like too many. I don't know. You get to, it goes over the course of a bunch of years. I'm only five episodes into it. It's a six episode series and I'm really, really enjoying this. Um, it, uh, it's Emma Thompson plays a, politician in the UK who much like Trump rises to power because of her unfiltered you know uh, she's saying what she's thinking kind of attitude and uh, what kind of troubles that that you know creates for for that part of the world uh, but this is sprawling this does go across countries across continents um, it uh, is very boyhood in style that like each episode kind of takes place in like a like you know a period of time and then the next episode will jump like a year later um so you're seeing things play out you're seeing relationships you know you're seeing uh marriages divorces you know kids that are born that you know a few episodes later are now grown up and you know like all that kind of stuff it's very interesting and I would highly recommend it and recommend it. It has a very nihilistic projection of the future, um, which makes me think either Chris would 
love or hate this. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But I, w- I would recommend this to all of you because I feel like this is such a weird, interesting show. I'm not sure it's, like, incredible, but it's it's I'm really, really enjoying watching it. And I only have, uh, I think, two episodes left. So I'm, I'm trying not to end it because I don't think they are making a second season. Or as far as I know. I, I, like most of the stuff in the UK, they usually don't, uh, you know, they do a series. So uh, that is years and years, and that is on HBO. I'm watching it currently on uh, HBO Go or whatever that is. They're on demand service. Um, and the other thing I have been watching this week is uh, Kitra was away watching a friend's dog, and this weekend I was bored and I mostly cleaned up. I've mostly like my my house was a complete disaster area. Um, we had this whole situation with a leak this past year, and that led us to moving furniture around and whatever. And it, it basically just never got fixed. So our entire apartment was like a complete utter disaster of a mess. And I spent this weekend basically cleaning up and watching YouTube. And uh, one of the YouTubers I've been watching lately, because probably because I've been getting into this, you know, as a creator on YouTube with Ordinary Adventures, I've been watching a lot of uh, YouTubers that talk about technology, talk about like cameras and uh, filmmaking and uh, how that all works. And there's this YouTube creator uh, named Potato Jet. He lives in Los Angeles and um, he is a filmmaker by trade. I think he is a director and a DP on a lot of commercials and music videos. I'm not sure if he's done any movies yet. I'm going to have to actually look that up. But uh, he also runs a YouTube channel, which uh, I don't know how he finds the time, but it's mostly him like showing off new uh consumer level gear like drones and like cameras and testing things out and doing silly things like you know putting a gopro in a remote control car and having his dogs chase after it and recreating the scene from jurassic park but from a gopro in slow motion on a gopro in a remote control car so stuff like that he's very funny a lot lot of the people in the space of of technology and specifically like cameras and photography and videography are very uh i want to call them bland but very like tech uh, they're very like data focused and not very uh personality driven and this guy is just so funny and I, i just wanted to recommend his channel potato jet um and I've been binge-watching through his back catalog, and it was interesting because I got to the point where uh, his channel just kind of blew up. I think he has, like, 400,000 subscribers now or something. And I got to the point where his channel had just started to blow up, and he was answering questions from listener or from watchers, uh, viewers, I guess. And uh, one of the questions was, like, how did the channel blow up? And he talked about this video that he created, which was the thing that kind of was the first video to go viral and it was this video of him uh shooting comparing like an iphone and trying to shoot cinematic like movie stuff style footage with an iphone and um he showed this montage of all these sites that picked up uh this 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 video and uh right across you know right there was the slash film logo and i was like i had to like rewind and pause it and I'm like, oh, we wrote about it? And I, 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 like, rewind to the exact frame, and I look at it, and I'm like, oh, I wrote about it. 
<laughs> so, um, I don't know. It was cool that I'm now enjoying a creator who I was in a very, very, very tiny way uh, responsible for helping uh, his first video go viral. It w- he would have went viral with well without me and well without us. But um, it was just kind of cool because I spent the whole weekend watching his stuff and then being like, "Whoa!" One of the you know one of the his big things going viral was uh, you know in a small way because of us. Uh, which is kind of cool. So check that out on YouTube. I'll link in the show notes. Potato Jets. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally saw Spider-Man Far From Home. And to everyone who said they love this movie, you are out of your mind. This movie stinks. Holy shit. What the hell? (laughs) What is going on? What am I missing here about Spider-Man Far From Home? Please, someone fill me in who has seen this movie. I'm assuming everyone on this podcast has seen it. Tell me what I'm missing. I feel like Jacob is probably the best person. I agree that it's messy, uh, but I also think that's a ton of fun. And I think that it has just enough on its mind to be interesting, full of performers I like watching, doing silly shit I enjoy. Uh, Chris, I think what you're missing here is that you don't have a heart. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, look, I, I really like Jake Gyllenhaal. He's having a he's having a really good time. I think Zendaya is great. She's like, her her MJ is. I honestly think my favorite MCU character, just because she's like this weird, morbid weirdo, and I can relate to that. So she's great. Um, Marissa Tomei is good in the the ten seconds of screen time she has. Tom Holland is fine i just i i didn't like this at all the the pacing is terrible it felt like it went on forever and i i should add i really liked um homecoming i thought that was a lot of fun and i don't know i think i just didn't like that this felt like an extension of uh end game like i liked that um uh, homecoming really felt sort of like its own thing like yes iron man was in homecoming but it really felt like a Spider-Man movie. And this to me just felt like another Avengers movie. And I don't know. I just, you know, I'm not like a huge Spider-Man fan, but I like, I like when Spider-Man sort of just sticks to New York and sticks to, you know, the neighborhood. That's his, his title, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And I don't really like the, the, the Spider-Man who goes on big globe trotting adventures, like a, like a spy. I just don't, it just doesn't work for me. So I really hope that third film sort of like, goes back to Queens and, and, you know, has him dealing with neighborhood stuff. But did you watch the end credits, Chris? What, where he get? yeah, I, I saw the end credits and... I, I don't think it's possible. I think, like, now that he's been out into gonna the be world... Like, yeah, so, but then what's it gonna be, like, where he's, like, Batman now, where he's, like, a vigilante? I don't know, like, I feel like you can do neighborhood stuff and make it big scale and make it work. I feel like um, uh, Into the Spider-Verse is the perfect example of that. Like, yeah, that deals with huge uh, stuff and, and multiverses, but it really is all set in one city, and it, it that feels epic, and I loved that movie, but this just, it didn't do it for me. And, you know, I know people love it. I know people love this Spider-Man and were very upset when they thought he was leaving the MCU and were very relieved when he came back to the MCU, but Boy, oh boy, did I not <laughs> care for this film. Chris, would you have liked it more if there was a shot of Peter Parker and 
MJ walking up the beach with a terrible cover of Africa by Pitbull, like your precious would, Aquaman. Actually. That like would be amazing. That would be amazing. First of all, Aquaman no, is great. It's stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> Team Aquaman. Aquaman is so much better than this movie. Oh my god, I, I could watch Aquaman every day of the week. I never want to see this again. The logo is fish. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if the if the far from home logo had been made out of spiders, maybe I I would have given it a pass. But no dice. <sighs> I, I just know my friend John right now who listens to the podcast has already thrown his phone across the room. Is it John Watts, the director of Spider-Man? <laughs> no, no, unfortunately not. Uh, but you know what? I, I actually, I somewhat agree with you, Chris. I do not like that this film is globetrotting. I, I, the thing I liked about that first film, Homecoming, was kind of the small scaleness of it. And even when it got up to like big scale with like the ending I, I of of homecoming I, I i kind of wish that it was like just at the the high school dance um but i don't think i think at this point there's no way to go back i think you've opened pandora's box and now but it's also i think it's it's also because though we already we already had two spider-man franchises that stayed local and kept stuff in new york and so you kind of have to mix it up by having spider-man go on these you know adventures that are a little further out and i think it helps that uh, he's not necessarily going, you know, and trying to be a superhero outside of New York, but it's it's the danger that finds him, you know. So there's al- there's almost this wrong place, wrong time kind of thing to it, and he does what he does because he is a superhero and he feels, you know, compelled to help as much as much as he can. And I will say this: we did a spoiler discussion on Spider-Man: Far From Home, where I mean, I know this film obviously has this. Uh, undercurrent this under theme of fake news and stuff like that that's not like something you that isn't obvious it is obvious but uh jacob went in depth about how this plot uh, like the plot of this film and even moments like him uh like the the whole uh scene where he's using his uh peter sense or whatever they call it i hate that too um peter tingle peter tingle yeah uh how that represents Trump and all you know all what's going on right now with Twitter and whatever and it was very insightful and made me like this film quite a bit. So if you if you are like Chris and you don't like this film, I would highly recommend go. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes to our Spider Man Far From Home spoiler discussion because I think uh, I think Jacob does a good job at making you think that this movie is a lot more deeper than it might that maybe even the filmmakers had intended. But uh, th- that's like, you know, what Jacob does. So and speaking of Jacob, uh, what have you been watching this week? Oh, I've been watching uh, <laughs> watching one of the best cinematic gifts of 2019, which was the season finale of BattleBots. Uh, guys, I know you, I'm, not, I'm never convinced any of you to watch a uh, robot combat fighting league. But, oh, my God, BattleBots was so good this season. <laughs> and um, my three favorite robots made it to the top eight. So it's heartbreaking to watch them get torn apart. I won't spoil anything uh, except to say that uh, this show warms my heart for a show about robots breaking each other to pieces. It is just a heartwarming, like, enriching experience where you see a bunch of dorks from different backgrounds really enjoy technology and really and have fun in the most niche of niche sports. So I BattleBots is available, uh, the purchase on Amazon, which is where I watched it, and it's just a blast. And... It's it's boxing except that everybody's nerds and there's no actual brain damage and everyone leaves feeling happy. So that's BattleBot. It's great. Uh, hope season five gets announced soon because I need it for next year. 
Uh, but the things that may be of more interest, I rewatched Hatchet and Hatchet 2 while drunk uh, over the weekend. And I remember these movies being of comparable quality. I remember them both being, you know, intentionally cheesy throwback slashers made by director Adam Green, whose other films I also enjoy. Uh, but rewatching them, I realized that Hatchet 1 is better than I remember it being. It feels, its goal is to recreate, you know, the schlocky 80s horror films, uh, particularly like early Friday the 13th, like micro-budget, you know, Lost in the Woods, guy with the bladed weapons chopping you up with practical effects. And Hatchet 1 really works. It really feels like a relic. It really feels like you should be finding it on VHS in the 80s. Hatchet 2, uh, Hatchet 2 really sucks. It sucks far worse than I remember it uh, being. And it just, it, it takes forever going. It's an 80-minute long movie. And it takes until minute 40 until they actually leave one location to get out into the plot of the movie. And the effects are glossier, but they're not, they lack, like, the charm of the first film. And it's just a sort of leaden, dull thing. And it does not have one ounce of the charm of the the sort of crass, stupid charm of the first film. And I've never actually seen Hatches 3 and 4. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to round them. Maybe I'll try for this Halloween season. But if you're like me and thought Hatchet 1 and 2 were pretty much the same movie, they're not. Uh, they're streaming now on Amazon. Although if you are going to endure Hatchet 2, you might as well spend a few bucks because the streaming for free version is the R-rated cut. The unrated cut, which has all the gore, which is the reason you watch these damn movies in the first place, is only available for rental, I think, for $3.99. Uh, anyone else here seen the Hatchet movies? I'm, I'm sure Chris has at some point. I actually have not ever sat down to watch these. The most I've seen, I've seen GIFs where he, like, rips people's heads off and stuff like that, but I've never actually watched the films themselves. I am shocked. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, you know what? We're gonna um, between me and Matt Donato, uh, slash some contributor Matt Donato. We're gonna force you to watch Hatchet for your next streaming column, Chris. <laughs> uh, uh, I will take. I'll, t- I'll take issue with this though. There are no hatchets in the Hatchet movie. Uh, he frequently uses an axe, but no hatchets. I, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right about this. Uh, write in if I'm not getting my hatchets and axes mixed up. Uh, anyway, uh, also. I'll watch the first episode of Shudder's new series, Creep Show. You may remember from this podcast, I visited the set earlier this year, so I'm not doing any writing about it, no, re- no reviewing for that reason. But I will say I really enjoyed the first episode. It is a throwback, like Hatchet. It's very successful as a throwback. It's just a bunch of uh, old-school horror fans and their, um, ac- and their acolytes teaming up with a bunch of actors they like to tell very short horror stories. Like each segment's like 18 minutes long. Each episode is two segments. And the first one uh, is... One very goofy, gory horror story. One that's a bit more subtle, a bit more creepy, sort of like a uh, grown-up Are You Afraid of the Dark story. And I dug them both. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of Creepshow as each episode arrives uh, once a week on Shudder with two more stories. And also, I know I mentioned, I talked at length about Fantastic Fest uh, earlier this week. But in case you missed the episode, I do want to give a shout-out to a few movies I saw there. Specifically, Knives Out, which is fantastic. The Lighthouse, which uh, we'll talk about more in a moment, but I have rules. And Parasite, my favorite film of the year, uh, and probably my favorite film of the past few years. So if you want to hear more about those movies, I talked at length on Monday's episode. Very cool. Brad, what have you been watching? I sat down to finally watch the uh, episodes that were available by this time this past weekend rolled around of the Great British Baking Show. Uh, the show is so much fun to watch. This season in, in particular, I'm, I have a mix of slight disappointment, but also like happiness watching it still because there are moments in the, in the show that, that I hadn't seen previously, mostly because I hadn't, haven't seen the previous seasons except for the one just before this. 
Uh, I love that this is a competition show, but everyone is so supportive of each other. And there's moments in the in this uh, this season so far where there are times that the contestants actually help each other to finish their uh, their presentations in time, which is such a cool thing. You know, most competition shows are meant to be you know, cutthroat and, you know, really competitive because that's what the whole point of it is. But this show is just such a breeze and wonderful because it has all these kind people just making amazing, incredible uh, baking creations and helping each other do it. And they're also bummed when somebody has to leave the show. Um, but at the same time, this season feels like it has the least interesting uh like roster that I've seen on a show like this, you know, last season had such a great assembly of different personalities and different kinds of people. And this season just feels kind of bland. There's only a couple people that I was really interested in invested in and like seeing around and they're already gone from the show. Uh, So while I'm still enjoying it, it does seem like this season isn't nearly as good as last season. Does anybody else who watched this agree? Yeah, I I do think my favorite people have gone home already, which is a shame. However, I am rooting for British Spider-Man right now. The guy who looks exactly like how I imagine Spider-Man to look in real life if Spider-Man was real. You know who I'm talking about, that guy. I do, yeah, that's 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 a good point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brad, what else have you been watching? Uh, so there's a show on Comedy Central that started up uh, a few weeks ago called Good Talk with Anthony Jeselnik. Uh, if you haven't seen, no, uh, seen Anthony Jeselnik, he's a comedian who is best known for kind of being this uh he's a, he's a roast comedian kind of first and foremost but he's very uh intentionally edgy and he's he's his character if you will on stage is that he's kind of a jerk and pushes the envelope and says things that are you know would be considered uh rude or just towing the line as far as uh appropriate is but he's he's very good and in, in real life he's a, you know a, a nice guy and everything but he's got this persona that he's built you know for comedy that that really works for him uh and so he does this show that is it's best described as like an inside the actor studio, but for comedians, but it's this mix of him asking genuine questions about comedy and their life to doing little bits here and there, uh, certain segments that, that have recurred so far. And so I, I kind of have a love hate relationship with it because there's parts of it that I really love because that when he is genuine and discussing things about comedy with his guests, that's when it's best, but it's when he, has to go back to leaning into his Anthony Jeselnik stage persona that I find it to be a little bit forced and contrived. Uh, and he said, he's had great guests so far too. He's had uh, Camille Nanjiani and Kristen Schaal and uh, Nick Kroll. And even though I don't, I don't like him much anymore, David Spade was on recently. And that was an interesting episode just to he- get him, you know, talking about stuff in a, an authentic, genuine way and not doing his, you know, typical smarmy kind of comedic shtick that he does on every appearance he ever makes. Uh, so it's uh, it's an interesting show. If you like comedy, it's worth checking out. It's on Comedy Central. It airs on Friday nights. Uh, I'm sure it's available elsewhere you know, on demand as well. Uh, but yeah, there's that. And you, you watched a horror movie? I did. Hol- uh, you know, it's Halloween season, and I've decided to kind of uh, make a more concerted effort to watch more horror movies than I usually do. Uh, my girlfriend had not yet seen Cabin in the Woods. She's kind. Of, she's not really a horror fan. Uh, she's one of those people who has a tendency to have nightmares sometimes and just doesn't. Not that she hates being scared, but she she can get really scared by a horror movie. Uh, but I told her that this was not you know your average horror movie. It's a very interesting concept that kind of plays you know with the the idea of what you know horror in general. 
And so we watched it, and she she did enjoy it. She definitely got scared during some parts still, but um, and I hadn't watched this rewatched this movie in a long time. But man, I love this movie so much. I I just I love how it plays with the tropes of horror and basically creates this world where every horror movie you've ever seen essentially could be considered, you know, a uh, a sacrifice to the you know the the gods who are um controlling the world and you know threaten to destroy it unless you know these people meet their de- demands of sacrificing people uh, in a very complex way uh and i just I, I love all the the little touches that go into it and explaining you know why you know people in horror movie scenarios make stupid decisions and uh just the i love that shot of all of the monsters and horror creations in the uh the, the containment units and this movie is just so so great I, I love it so much very cool and where did you watch cabin in the woods uh i own it so i don't know if it's available to stream anywhere ah well, uh, Chris has a whole list of movies that your girlfriend can watch. I'm sure uh, that that is true. I, I def- I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 trying to to like ease her into it with stuff that I feel like isn't going to scare her too I much know. right off the bat. So <laughs> yeah, I do yeah. think just to point, I want to point out that uh, Chris is doing a daily article this month, or he's doing 31 days of streaming horror, where once a day, every day, he will be writing a few words about a movie that's streaming right now to get you ready for Halloween. Uh, Chris, do you want to say anything about it? Yes, it's true. Every single day. So that's 31 pieces out there. So please read them. <laughs> Don't make, make my sacrifice worth something because I'm doing this for you, dear readers. I'm just pointing out horror that is streaming right now. And I'm trying not to be obvious about it. Like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, ah, Halloween, like everyone has seen Halloween. I'm trying to point out things that you might not be aware of that are streaming right now that you should check out for Halloween season, the best time of the year. Chris, when is your Hocus Pocus article coming up? <sighs> I don't even know if that's streaming. I'll have to check. <laughs> I don't know. It will be streaming when Disney Plus launches. Oh, that's true. But that's yes. not till November, so it's too late. Yeah. So I guess you can't include it. You have to wait till next year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. HT, what have you been watching? been watching a lot of movies, but mostly I've been spending time in space. Um, I watched Ad Astra, which is James Gray's new uh, space odyssey starring Brad Pitt as an astronaut who is sent on a top secret mission to retrieve his uh, long missing father. And I really enjoyed this movie. I will. It's not one of my favorite movies of the year, but I... Um, I remember being forewarned that it was very slow burning and contemplative and I didn't for a second get bored during this. I really, I enjoyed that sort of more contemplative space cerebral movie. And I think Brad Pitt gives a real, um, real strong um, internal performance here. It uh, This film is kind of like Apocalypse Now meets Blade Runner. And uh, it has that sort of odyssey type of structure. Uh, but in a sense, because it's more of like a very simplistic story, it allows you to focus, hone in on this uh, father-son dynamic with Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones. And I had watched James Gray's last film, uh, Lost City of Z, and not really connected with with it, I admired it for what it was doing in trying to explore how men's ambitions can end up swallowing them whole. But I think that he achieves that so much better with Ad Astra, which I feel like um, does that through uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character, and you kind of see it from a distance. And it's a real interesting deconstruction of great men and our perceptions of great men and kind of how fallible they are because of that presumed greatness. So. I'll say I liked Ad Astra a lot. 
Um, another space movie I saw I did not like as much. This is Lucy in the Sky. It's Noah Hawley's feature directorial debut. It stars Natalie Portman. And it's a very, very loose adaptation of the uh, uh, astronaut diaper story. You may remember from the tabloids a couple years ago when a woman who was an astronaut drove cross-country in a diaper to um, attack uh, this woman or this uh, of the uh, or attack the man who she had been having an affair with. Um, and this is a very loose adaptation. It's kind of Noah Hawley's like, launch pads to, to explore something about the disconnect uh, that people can feel when they are separated from the world. And I was actually on board for the first hour or so of this movie. Um, that Hawley does something really showy, which is very in line with Noah Hawley and like all his very cerebral trippy stuff that he does with Legion in that in um, Lucy in the Sky, he changes aspect ratio frequently to sort of reflect Lucy's inner headspace. And while it can get really distracting, I was actually, you know, on board with this. I, I got what he was trying to do by trying to... Um, get us into her mind, even though Natalie Portman gives a very internal performance again. Um, but at the end, I think that this film gets sort of has to do lip service to the story that it's inspired by and thus kind of loses its momentum or loses where it was trying to go. In the end, it feels sort of like it was showy with nothing to show for it. I didn't really know what it was trying to say or who Lucy really was, even at the end, even though we spent an entire movie with her, which is really unfortunate because I think Natalie Portman is great in this, even if she's wearing like Finn Wolfhard's wig from Stranger Things. You know, I, I don't agree with this, but I think a lot of people would say that of a lot of Noah Hawley's work. Mm. That it's more showy and doesn't have much to say, but... Um... Yes. I mean, that's kind of also the reason I stopped watching Legion. Yeah. Which I enjoyed, but also I, I can't say I took anything away from it. Yeah, same. So uh, <laughs> what else have you been seeing? Um, a movie I saw just yesterday and enjoyed a lot. and In fact, it might be one of my favorite movies of the year, is The Lighthouse. This is uh, Robert Eggers' uh, new follow-up to The Witch, which was... Uh, which I loved. It's that, The Witch I kind of is the movie that almost turned me around to horror movies because it made me realize what I'd been missing out on. And The Lighthouse is um, follows a lot, a lot of the same themes of The Witch. It's about that growing paranoia and how it can consume and destroy and all that stuff. And it's this real unsettling, almost like perversely funny uh, showcase for um, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, who are both just perfect 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 in this movie and it you know boils over and becomes this big bloodbath uh, I really like how it's a psychological horror at the film and then it kind of explodes into this all-out horror and um, it again also plays with aspect ratio it's shot in black and white and um, it has a sort of letterboxed uh, aspect ratio to kind of key you into the claustrophobia of it all um but i i love this movie i it's so it's so unnerving and everything that willem dafoe and robert patton do are just so over the top and so insane and so grossly funny um oscar buzz for both of them i would say and i i really hope both of them get nods they are amazing willem dafoe every word he said i can't uh like nail down one one quote from him, but everything he said that came out of his mouth was just 
impeccable. And then Robert Pattinson, I hope on his Oscar reel at some point in the future, has the line, uh, I'm sick of your goddamn farts, which he <laughs> delivers with such passion. <laughs> um, and it's really, it's a great movie. And I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, HG, um, I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, at the Q&A following the screening at Fantastic Fest, uh, when I asked what the movie was about, Robert Eggers says that The Lighthouse is about what happens, uh, the dangers of putting two men alone in a building shaped like a phallus. <laughs> yes, um, it's very, it's a very sexual movie, and I love that. Um, and yes, there's, there's a lot of, um, I guess, warning for all of you. There's a lot of violent masturbation in this movie, uh, so just a forewarning for any of you. Wait, yes, wait, it's, wait, wait. It's very much about that. I, I, I don't even want to ask, but what, <laughs> what is violent master? Like what? Actually, I'm not asking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't Jeez, know. Peter, if you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'm going to have to see the movie. Yes. See it. <laughs> okay. What definitely else? don't Google. Definitely don't Google it. <laughs> don't Google. Yes. Yeah. Uh, see what else have you been watching? <laughs> um, I watched the first time Inside Lewin Davis, which uh, is my one of my friend's favorite Coen Brothers movie. And I actually remember during Comic-Con when uh, Jacob Hall went on a alcohol-inspired ramble about his hot takes. He also said this is the best Coen Brothers movie. Um, and um, I really liked it. I, I like how it's so muted and just kind of slow and really captures that sense of depression that creatives go through and in a very cyclical way too um and also it, it is funny in like the the coen brothers sense too but it also feels like something uh that's a little bit more um thoughtful than well i, I wouldn't say that's more thoughtful than any of their other ones they're also they're always great but i i was surprised by how much i really enjoyed this and um performances were also exceptional oscar isaac who played a real unlikable character uh that you cannot stop watching the entire time just because he reminds you so much of people in your real life. And um, I, I really enjoy just watching it in general. And I, I actually want to go back and see it because um, it, it it sat with me for quite a bit. Um, but yeah, Jacob, I kind of called you up, but do you want to talk about how this is how this is the best Coen Brothers movie, according to you? It is the, the only movie I've ever seen about being an incredibly talented person who has everything it needs to break big, but missing your window and realizing you've missed it and watching it get smaller and smaller as it gets in the distance. And I think anybody who's ever had a dream of any kind can relate to that and realize, you know, what if I missed my window for jumping up to whatever I needed to? And for, the movie is funny and sad and beautifully shot, but it's the only film I've ever seen that nails that feeling of having missed it perfectly. And I can never get over that. Beautifully okay. said. Yeah, HT, what, what other movies have you been watching at the New York Film Festival? Yes, um, I have been watching a, a lot of movies, but two I'm going to shout out is uh, First Cow, which is a new A24 film directed by Kelly Reichert and uh, starring John Magaro, uh, Orion Lee, Toby Jones. Um, and it's a, I, get, I think to say that this is a, um, a buddy comedy set in frontier in the frontier would be kind of a disservice to this movie. It's a real funny, but real sweet and tender um, buddy movie. I feel I wish there was a better way of describing a movie about like this 
real deep and connected relationship between two men. And, um, but I, I guess there isn't, but I, I really enjoyed it. It's about, um, this, this man who is hired on as a cook for a trapping company, um, and runs into a Chinese prospector and they become fast friends and, um, start stealing milk from this cow that has just been imported to a wealthy man living in this sort of shanty town. And uh, they steal the milk and start their own baking business. And it has kind of that irreverent flair to it, but it's just so soft and sweet and slow and tender that I, I really enjoyed this. Um, and uh, I highly recommend this to um, to people. I had a lot of sort of, um, reminded me a lot actually of a movie I saw in 2017, I think 2018, uh, leave no trace. In that, it it feels kind. Of, it feels like that captures that sort of lost um, life in a way uh, that I really enjoyed, or that sort of um, life on the fringe, and has that sort of same serene quality to it. Uh, and yes, first cow. Uh, How, uh, how's how's the cow in the, the cow movie? is great. The cow is perfect. Does the cow live? That's all I have to. Does, don't it tell me that. It is a cow, a cow that lives. The cow lives, oh. and nothing happens to the cow. Don't All right, worry. then I will. Then I will see first cow. I was, I was hesitant, because anytime there's a movie with like an animal these days, it's like that. Like. All, last year there was like four horse movies and they were all about the horse dying and I didn't bother to see any of them. But no, now I'll watch First Cow. Yeah, the cow is only treated with the utmost respect, especially especially by John Magaro's character who just kind of sweetly talks to the cow and pets it the entire time. So all right. now it's a good cow. Nice. All yeah. right. <laughs> Chris, you weren't here last week, but I watched uh uh Super Size Me Two, Holy Chicken. And uh you should not watch that. I won't. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, H.C., I think you have one more film to talk about? Uh, yes. This is a other film from New York Film Festival. I'm sorry. I'm going long. Uh, this is Varda by Agnes, which is a documentary um, directed by Agnes Varda. And I really enjoy Agnes Varda's works. I've seen a couple of her documentaries. The Gleaners and I is one of my favorites. Um, and this was a real interesting documentary because it kind of – it. It is released posthumously, um, but it feels so much in line with Agnes Varda's documentaries and that she inserts herself into them. And it feels very much like an extension of her as um, any of her other films. Um, but in a way, it's, it is like that swan song for her because it is based around this lecture that she gives. And the Varda by Agnes feels simultaneously like sitting in a really small classroom with uh, Varda Agnes as she with Agnes Varda, sorry, as she um, talks about her techniques and her films and her her really rich history and, and um, filmography. And it also has a bit of a surreal bent. It feels as if she kind of takes you by the hand and walks you through this history herself because there are reenactments, there are just little places where she suddenly turns to the camera while talking about one of her older films and gives little insights to it. It's just so wry and impish and really fun. Um, I actually will say this is one of the movies at New York Film Festival that I enjoyed the most. I was laughing and just having such a blast watching this. Uh, so this is, um, even if you don't like documentaries or don't really know much about Agnes Varda, I highly recommend Varda by Agnes. Okay, and you revisited an old favorite? Yes, I'm about to talk about anime now, so sit back, guys. <laughs> um, I was I've been rewatching or revisiting uh, an old favorite anime that I used to watch called Inuyasha. 
And uh, this is an anime that I actually hadn't thought about in a while until uh, I went to Comic-Con in, in San Diego and they were deeming out these little Inuyasha fans. And that was kind of a nice nostalgic blast for me. Uh, but recently I was feeling a little bit sad and stressed and watching some uh, old anime uh, TV show openings, which are just kind of like a fun, upbeat way of perking myself up. And I ended up going down this rabbit hole and finding old clips from Inuyasha. And uh, I was just re-watching them. And in doing so, I realized that there was a, an, a newer or more recent Inuyasha series that was done to wrap up the, the series after I had, I had stopped watching. I never finished the series. I read the manga, but I never wa finished watching the anime. And um, so I was really interested to see where this series went. Um, and this is called Inuyasha, The Final Act, and it's streaming on Hulu. It's a 32-episode um, series that started airing in 2010 and kind of wrapped up the story of Inuyasha. And I've been kind of watching that and really remembering why I loved this anime series so much. Uh, so a brief summary. Inuyasha is a series that follows this teenage girl in modern-day Tokyo who... Um, falls down this ancient well that is near this family shrine. And she, when she emerges, she finds that she's um, in feudal Japan and is being chased by demons who are after a magical jewel that is actually embedded in her body. And when this jewel is torn out of her, it starts a circle of... Um, a, a cycle of events uh, that leads her to this half demon named Inuyasha, who's also after this jewel, which will basically bestow upon its holder um, limitless powers. And in the ensuing fights, the jewel gets shattered, and she ends up having to go on a journey with Inuyasha to recover the pieces of the jewel and put it back together before more evil forces can uh, claim it for their own. This is a series that is, um, it's very 90s. I, uh, I remember reading it, and this is written by Rumiko Takahashi, and it has that sort of uh, slapstick um, tone to it while being a big action, adventure, and melodrama. And um, it was, when it was airing, it was up there with, like, the most popular sort of action series. Like, you, you hear about, you know, Naruto and Bleach and stuff, but I wondered why Inuyasha kind of fell by the wayside. It for me, I consider it a, a big classic series, but I think it's because uh, it appeals a lot to, to women. I remember when I was growing up, I had watched it, and most of the people who I watched it with were other girls. And I actually talked to a, a friend of mine who watched anime and said that he felt betrayed by Inuyasha because he went in expecting an uh, action-adventure series and instead got, like, this soap opera. And it's it's fun because of that soap opera. It's real sweeping and grand and majestic. And um, it has such a great sort of romance at the center of it. But uh, it has a comedy as well that may throw off people who never have seen anime. But it was just really nice revisiting this series that I uh, grew up with and kind of going back into the characters who I really liked and were so well drawn and depicted. And... Um, yeah, I, I've been rewatching. I've been watching that series on Hulu and just having a grand time. And yeah, I will say that the designs of the um, the demons and the folklore that the series draws on is so interesting and so much more imaginative imaginative than I remembered it being. So I'm I'm really enjoying just like watching it from fresh eyes. Yeah, and you can rewatch this, or you can watch this film along with a, or I mean this series along with HD on Hulu. So yes, go do that's that. That's Yasha. Yeah. Uh, what have we been eating, Jacob? Uh, 
during Fantastic Fest, I went off my diet, uh, so I'm recovering from that still. But uh, we managed to take Chris out to Gordo's, which is sort of an Austin institution. Gordo's began as a food truck serving these uh, really lavish dessert donuts. And now they have brick and mortar locations where they actually have full on entrees. Give you an idea of a Gordo's meal. My favorite thing there is a savory garlic donut topped with a potato pancake, topped with bacon wrapped meatloaf, topped with uh, candied jalapenos. And this time there, I had donut topped with potato pancake, topped with pot roast, topped with gravy, topped with fried onions. Uh, Chris, what did you have here for Samuel Gordo's? Uh, I forget what it was called, but it was a it was basically a donut burger. Um, it was a veggie burger because I'm a vegetarian and. Uh, it was very good and it was very filling and I can't imagine having something like this frequently, but for like a one time thing, it was, uh, very good and very unhealthy. Like it's one of those things you bite into and you're like, oh, this is delicious. And also I lost a year of my life from just taking (laughs) that one bite, but it was, it was very good. And then we got some sort of Jacob ordered some sort of, I don't even know what it was, but it was like a. What was that, Jake? It was like a thing with cheese in I don't know. It, it was a massive uh, pile of donut dough, deep fried, stuff with mozzarella cheese, throw dipping sauces. That was really oh good God. on its own. So we had all that, and then this was like noon, and then I had to go sit through movies, and the whole day I was just like, boy, I am dying, but it was worth it. Do you, do you feel... Chris, like when, when you see movies at the Alamo Draft House, I feel like, especially at like Fantastic Fest, where you're there all day, like you're not hungry, but you can order food. Do, do you like, do you still like, do you feel the, the pull to like, you have to order food at every screening? Yeah. I mean, I, I eventually had to like stop myself because there were times <laughs> where I'd be in a screening and I had just eaten in the previous screening, but I was like, I can order more food, but I, you know, I, I had to practice some sort of self-control because I realized if I didn't, I would uh, suffer the consequences. Yeah. Okay, Brad, what kind of uh, crazy things have you been eating this week? Oh, the craziest, Peter. Uh, no, nothing ridiculous, but um, I, I picked up this pack of apple cider cookies that are only available at 7-Eleven. And uh, they were very good. Uh, it's kind of like the perfect fall cookie. I'm a big apple cider fan uh, in general. And I expected these to basically just taste a lot like apple pie uh, Oreos that there have been before. But uh, there is something about the cream in these cookies that does have an apple cider taste to it, which I was uh, impressed by. And they're, they're pretty good. I'm hoping I can find uh, some more before the season is up. And then uh, also in the fall uh, season spirit, Arby's has a new s'mores shake. And I'm always interested to try like a new s'mores flavored dessert thing. Uh, But more often than not, I I end up walking away not quite satisfied with it because I love s'mores uh, in general. But the thing with s'mores flavored things is they, they often only have the honey graham cracker flavor and not much of the marshmallow or chocolate combined with it to really make it uh, a s'mores flavor. It's more just a general graham cracker uh, taste. And that's kind of the case with the s'mores shake. There is a little bit of offset because they do drizzle some chocolate, you know, uh, in it with, with the whipped cream and whatnot. But it's, uh, again, it's still overwhelmingly uh, a graham cracker shake, which tastes uh, pretty good, but it's just not a s'more shake to me. 
And then uh, maybe the most ridiculous thing that I went out of my way to try was, uh, in case you haven't seen it, Pizza Hut has this new uh, Cheez-It pizza. Oh, I, I want it. It looks like... It looks like a mozzarella stick, but instead of mozzarella stick, it's square, and it looks like a Cheez-It. That's essentially what it is, and you can, you can get it either plain with just the mozzarella cheese on the inside, or you can get it with pepperoni on the inside. And I will, I'll say that they're okay. Uh, it is, it's crazy how much they, these do look like just giant Cheez-Its, and the, the outer crust does have a, a Cheez-It flavor to it. But they're also very dry. They give you sauce for dipping, but even so, like just just by themselves, the fact that it, whatever they use to make the cheeses dough just just kind of makes it a little bit more dry than I was was anticipating, I guess. Uh, so I'm like I'm not mad that I tried them, but I I don't think that I would get them again. Brad, you're crushing my dreams. All I want to do is eat giant uh, mozzarella sticks that look like Cheez-Its. Go, go, and you shall prosper. <laughs> Back on my diet, I can't, so i got to live vicariously through you. Uh, speaking of which, there's a new Mountain Dew flavor, and I'm curious about this because you talked about it, I think, a couple weeks ago. That's like a mystery flavor. Yeah, it was a mystery flavor. We talked about it. It's, it's, it's Mountain Dew Voodoo, and they just recently revealed what the mystery flavor is, and I'm, I'm pissed because it's candy corn. And I fucking hate candy corn, first of all. And second of all, this did not taste a thing like candy corn. We talked about what it tasted like, and nowhere in my in my my taste buds was there a candy corn flavor. And I would know it because I fucking hate candy corn. Yeah, you were telling so, me it tasted like Skittles or something. Yeah, it, it had a Skittles taste to it, you know. And it, and then like that was mostly like the the aftertaste was a, a very Skittles esque flavor. But even like the initial taste, it it had almost like a tropical flavor to it. There was nothing. That tasted like candy cane in this soda whatsoever, uh, or candy corn that tasted in the soda. So I just, I don't, I don't know like where they even got this stupid idea from, and I'm just, I'm just mad that there was candy corn. I'm Brad, I think you, I think you like candy corn, Brad. I think you've learned a very valuable lesson about yourself. <laughs> oh, I hate it. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if you got another one of them, knowing now that it's supposed to taste like candy corn. If you tasted it, if you'd be like, oh, I can, I can taste the candy corn notes in there. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to find one again and give it a shot, but I just I don't I don't think so. Okay, lastly, what we've been playing, Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Uh like many people all over the internet, I've been playing Untitled Goose Game. This is a new video game made by House House Games. And it's become a bit of a meme recently. So even if you haven't played the game or even know it's a game, you've probably seen images of a goose causing havoc, and that's the basis for Untitled Goose Game. It's uh it's a very brief game. It's only a few hours long. I'm, I'm not too far into it. It's only, uh, I think it's $15, $20 based on where you buy. I'm playing on Nintendo Switch. It's also available on PC and other computers. And the gist is literally, you are a goose. You're in a small English town. And each time you enter an area, you are given a list of ways to cause havoc. And it'll be, for example, it'll be um, uh, have a picnic by stealing everybody's food and putting on a blanket. It will be, you know, um, steal this item, cause this kid to have to do this, uh, you know, make sure this person falls down. It's just you being a total jerk goose, and it's so much fun. Uh, so much of the fun comes to the fact that the goose is so well animated. He's animated to be very realistically a goose. So watching him or her uh, pull off all kinds of weird shenanigans, slapstick shenanigans, is really entertaining to, to, to watch. Uh, in terms of gameplay, it's actually closest, if anything, to the Hitman games, where in, in those games, you're, you're essentially puzzle games where you watch an environment 
uh, watch the, the gears turn in a programmed environment and find a way to intervene to kill somebody. And this, it's the same thing. You're a goose wandering around an environment, but instead of killing somebody, you're causing some sort of slapstick way to annoy them. And uh, it's, it requires a little bit of patience. You know, you watch patterns of people and it requires a little bit of, you know, puzzle solving as you kind of figure out where it goes. But the results are so satisfying. It's so fun. It's so, it's so nice to play a game that's just funny uh, without having, you know, actual written jokes and a game that is, you know, so suspenseful without having any kind of violence. And I mean, it's just a really nice breathment of a game. I'm really enjoying playing it in between, you know, more intense, you know, uh, rules heavy games you only need to use like four buttons i i'm really enjoying untitled goose game between this and super smash brothers (laughs) uh, i am so like tempted to get a switch look the switch library in addition to all the great nintendo games like all the zelda games and the mario games the library of indie games on nintendo switch has grown to the point where uh you could not buy any $60 brand new games and still have an amazing time to switch for years based on just the, the, the incredible deep library of indie games from uh, people who, you know, aren't necessarily huge names, but have been creating these satisfying, like unique experiences for years. And the switch is so fam- is so famously easy to port for all these games that used to be available strictly on PC are now just popping up on switch every day. Uh, I, Brad, I, 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 I don't know which, if, you, if you plan to play a lot of games beyond those two, but the library here is there. If it, it, I think it's worth the investment. Fair I'm, enough. I'm wondering, uh, with the recent uh, release of iOS 13 or whatever it is, they they launched Apple Arcade, which is kind of like Apple's version of an all-you-can-eat like Netflix-style service for, for video games. I guess there's like unlimited access to over 100 uh, new games uh, rolling out this fall. Is, is that something that, like any of you would be interested in like I mean, i'm just curious if like that is even something that's like appealing to gamers or is this like who who is the audience for this i mean the, the mobile game market is so huge i mean personally my switch has replaced my phone for mobile games on the go so i don't play games on my phone much these days uh but there's no denying the, the billions of dollars that go into you know the, the mobile gaming industry and the fact that many of the games available on that service are not just you know tapping games or games that like have stories and more complex mechanics games you can find on switch and pc and playstation and xbox it really feels like it's uh apple's way of saying come pay this low fee and then come experience you know the fact that there are there's really more a deeper bench of games you may suspect because looking at that list it's very few of like you know clash of clans type things and more like you know really unique indie experiments that i'm i'll be playing on other consoles as it is so i'm really hoping it's you know, them throwing their weight behind really talented de- developers and really talented designers and studios as opposed to, you know, the, the quick cash-in games that want you to enter your credit card to get more points or whatever. I don't know. I don't play a lot of mobile games these days. But, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I'll get around to doing it because the games I want to play are available elsewhere. Uh, but, for, but for people who are serious gamers who want to play those kinds of things on their phone, I think it may be a really useful thing for them. They supposedly have, like, uh, won over some big developers to develop some at least uh for a period of time exclusive on arcade so that's that's interesting anyways okay that brings us to the end of today's slash film daily you can find more of all of our work at slash film.com you can find this podcast published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slash film.com and please rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow
Hey, hey, Peter. Uh, Jacob, uh, Ben isn't here, and I know we normally like to fuck with him by having you read out of this book. I know all of uh, all the rest of us like love it. He's not here, so you don't have to do it today. Peter, you're trying to gaslight me. Uh, what? You're trying to gaslight <laughs> me. You're trying to convince me that something is true that is not true. So I, I've opened the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, riposts, caustic quips, and impolite put-downs by Louis A. Safian to page 342. And uh, appropriately, this is a liar's section, because that's what you are, Peter. You're a liar trying to trick me here. Anyway, uh, Peter, you're the kind of fisherman who catches fish by the tail. Peter, you're the kind of fisherman who catches fish by the tail. Because normally you catch them by they they eat the they. I, I'm I, guessing it, it's spelled like tail, like a story, or am I wrong? Chris is correct. Chris gets the joke. He's very funny. All right. All right. Does he get a prize? I love that Chris, these jokes require spelling. Like, like you can't like they, they can't be said verbally. You need to be you need to read them. Well, Chris's prize is he gets the next joke. Oh. If Chris, if Chris <laughs> asks you to guess how much he made last year, you're you're safe in saying half. It's, uh, all it, right. Wait, is that is that a sexist joke about his wife taking half? I'm confused. If Chris asks you to guess how much he made last year, you're safe in saying half. I don't. Ht. Yes. Uh, she says she enjoys a cold shower in the morning. She lies about other things, too. It is a lie. I don't enjoy cold showers in the morning. And Brad, he's never been known to burn the candor at both ends. Oh, boy. Burn the candor? Oh, I get it. Kind of like oh, candle. Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. He's, he's never been known to burn the candor at both ends. Hmm. Jacob, we all just love this book. I mean, it, it's Ben the one that keeps on trying to get you to stop doing it. Jacob, well, you should go back and listen to uh, last week's water cooler episode because I I used a, a totally real and not at all made up book uh, to to f- fill in the slot of the insults at the end of that episode. <laughs> well, since Ben isn't here, I will have to uh, send one to him through the airwaves. So uh, Ben swears at himself. I'm sorry. Ben swears at himself after everything he says because he hates liars. Wow. Ah. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, Ben just cringed and he doesn't know why. I, I imagine him on the top of like, like one of those like huge like mountains and like one of the islands of Hawaii, like raising his fist in the air as it like just the, like Jacob's voice is echoed all the way to Hawaii, and he's just like angry. <laughs> <laughs> 